Um, you know, I believe the world has truly gone mad. <laughs> That's the only rational explanation for everything. And and here in the States, we're listening to both sides of the the political spectrum, you know, from the deep states in a panic, uh, uh, from the bizarre behaviors of Rudy Giuliani. And, you know, I'm not sure my views of the deep state as the same manner as like the the major uh, networks, especially Fox might portray uh, Donald Trump's enemies. I mean, I do believe there is a group with an agenda, um, but I think the Comeys, the Mueller's, uh, and the rest of them—they're only the pawns and only scratching the surface. Uh, would you like to comment on the quote-unquote deep state? Yes. And- yes. Yes. I, I, well, that's a very good point that you make because uh, deep state has only entered the mainstream political lexicon in the last year or two, uh, as I'm sure everyone out there knows. But it has been around for. Uh, quite a bit longer than that now. It's it's going back decades at this point, going to researchers like uh, Peter Dale Scott, who pioneered the term and the idea uh, when looking at, as he extensively has done in his writing, looking at, for example, um, the JFK assassination or 9-11. He talked about deep state and deep phenomena going on in the highest levels of government. And uh, I, I, in that context, uh, I think it's a very fleshed out and, and interesting idea. But in, of course, what becomes the McDonald's soundbite kind of style at which everything is just uh, thrown at you on the 24-7 news cycle these days, the term deep state has been watered down to the point of almost meaninglessness at this point. I mean, it just refers to some of the, a few of the old old guard or some of the pe- the people who hang on through administration after administration. But it is, as you say, a much deeper, if you'll forgive the adjective there, a deeper phenomenon. It's a, it's a more important um, thing that's going on than just a few of these Mullers or people like that, uh, Mueller. It's, it's uh, in fact, it's encapsulated in something that's going on this weekend that I imagine some of your audience might have heard about, which is the Bilderberg Conference, which of course is taking place. Well, I was just going to ask you about that, yes. Absolutely. Well, Turin, Italy, um, this weekend is going to be the scene of the Let's uh, do a quick calculation. It's going to be about this. Well, we're getting on to the 70th conference. I don't know if we're there yet, but at any rate, somewhere around there. And um, and this year, they're going to be talking about populism in Europe. They're going to be talking about inequality. They're going to be talking about uh, Russia. They're going to be talking about the post-truth world and other things, at least according to the official agenda. You know, believe it as far as you can throw it. Um, but obviously, these are the things that occupy, preoccupy the minds of the people in the real deep state. And when we're talking about the real deep state, we're talking about more like the people who attend the Bilderberg Conference, the CEOs of major international corporations, uh, the heads of uh, many foreign governments, uh, very high-ranking officials, uh, ex-CIA uh, chief, um, people like Henry Kissinger. These types of people tend to be the at least the super gophers of whoever is really pulling the strings. And I'll, I'm not going to get into that. That's above my pay grade. But at any rate, there are people who are much higher up in the uh, hierarchy, as the real hierarchy that exists, than these people that are kind of being thrown around as the deep state uh, by the mainstream press these days. And, and I think it's, uh, it's unfortunate that this topic has become so diluted from its real meaning, because when you really look at it, uh, there really is a driving force behind many of these major events that happen, but it's not the people that are being dang- dangled in front of us in the puppet show that is politics. Um, it is. Are the Bilderbergers, or, or is the true deep state, are they in panic? Are they, or are they, are they comfortable with 
the, the the scenarios that are going on here and around the world are they threatened well uh, first of all i would like to to i think that the um the the premise of that question might be based on the idea of a an all powerful ruling oligarchy that can do everything and does everything and everything that happens is their 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 doing and that that is kind of the 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 simplistic way that sometimes it is it we think of it even even myself and others when we just kind of gloss over it yeah the deep state they control everything i think uh, it's much more that there are, are uh competing power structures and competing elements within the deep state maybe we can't say the deep state because maybe there are multiple deep states and they overlap in different ways uh g edward griffin gave a presentation that i always recommend to people where he was talking about the concept of rings within rings that there are these vast rings of people who are associated in different groups and connections and conferences and things that may or may not have any idea of what the ring of people kind of closer into the center of power are doing. Um, and those people might not know what's going on a little bit closer into the center of power. So I think there are overlapping and over interlocking uh, systems of control and they compete with each other. So I'm not sure there is a singular agenda and there is a singular response to what's happening right now that the deep state is panicking per se. I think that, again, might simplify it too much to the point where it's diluted. But I, 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 so taking it from that perspective, I'm not sure there is a plan which is being threatened here. There are plans that could be threatened, um, but I'm not sure there is a singular plan. And so it's a question, it's always a question of which way the, the, the powers that shouldn't be, the various interlocking forces, which way they want to try to direct change. Because change is always happening and it's always moving forward. It's just a question of which direction do we go in with it, this or that change. So there is a sense in which these populist movements and things absolutely can be co-opted and diverted and put into part of the, the larger plan. So we always have to think, I think, from that strategic framework where, yeah, there's a lot of things that are happening that maybe if there was some magic controller who controlled literally every event in the world wouldn't want to happen. But if it's happening, well, how can how can we direct it this way or how can we direct it that way? I think that's the way that the people, for example, attending Bilderberg tend to think of world events is how can we use this to, this momentum for to our advantage? And that, conversely, that's exactly how we, the people who aren't in those positions of power with billions of dollars and banks and whatever at our, at our control, that's the way we need to be thinking about this. Change is happening. We are in a forward momentum. But how do we direct that and how do we make it so it, it doesn't end up in this consolidation of control in the hands of this power mad uh, elite but as we see the the cha- if we as we see the the wealth of these oh you know for a lack of a better term right now the elite doesn't that give them some sort of uh, an extra thumb over us i mean doesn't that allow them to truly control things more so than they yes. ever have yes. before. Yes, absolutely. As, as it's kind of the snowball rolling downhill. I mean, it's not just that they're rich and more rich and powerful. It's that 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 dis- discrepancy between their uh, riches and power is growing and growing and growing. So that uh, yeah, the, absolutely, people in those positions do have vastly more resources to throw at these things than the people. But I always, I, I mean, there are a couple of things to note about that, and one of them is that I always try to bring it back to the perspective that yes. Absolutely, they spend 
untold, unthinkable amounts of money and time and energy trying to direct society this way and that and to, to brainwash people and to, to keep them in their bubbles and to keep them fighting with each other, divide and conquer and all of these things. But I think what that actually points to in a way that sometimes gets glossed over is the fact that it still is the average person people out there. It's, it's really us and our opinions and which way we are motivated to go that is still the underlying determining factor. That's why they spend so much time propagandizing and trying to, to make us believe that or this or to throw us off or to stage a d you know, deep state event in order to make everyone panic. It's because our reactions still are the important piece of this puzzle. There are billions of us and only, you know, However many it is, you know, if you want to count the super gophers, if you take, uh, what is it, uh, uh, David Rothkopf's formulation, uh, he called them the super class. And he said there is about 8,000 people on the planet who have the ability to influence international events that, that are that are supranational. And if you want to take that, that formulation, then there are 8,000 of them. There are billions <laughs> of us. We really yes. do have the power, but we have to... We have to consciously know and wield that power. And uh, that's all, that's exactly why I'm here. And I'm imagining it's a large part of the reason that you're there doing what you do. Yes. Absolutely. Um, you know, it was interesting. I saw a short interview right before the, the show. It was Robert Kennedy Jr. was being interviewed by, I don't know, one of the Fox uh, um, analysts. I think it was. Tucker Carlson, and I just saw the end of it. He's just is publishing a uh, is releasing a new book, and uh, but he was he was upset with about uh, uh, the president not releasing more information on the assassination of his uncle, and you know it was really I, I, it it piqued my interest because you know he's talking about uh, you know what he had seen um, and about the you know how the CIA was connected to the assassination and so forth and he he really had some great information and I, that really doesn't even you know match up to what we were talking about except you know here's this other little group that the you know history was changed and uh, you know it's difficult to to truly get to the truth um to the matter so um, I, I will get the title of that book. I I I couldn't uh, uh, didn't have a chance to to see what the title of the book was, but uh, it was really an interesting interview uh, with Robert Kennedy Jr. Yeah, I, I don't know the, the book me. off the top of my head either, but I do know that yes, uh, RFK Jr. has been talking um, a lot more openly about some of these things recently, yeah. including not just uh, the assassination of his uncle, but also his father. And uh, some, yes. uh, again, for I, I don't know how much this has been openly questioned by the family itself, but uh, at any rate, it is now being openly brought into the question, who killed RFK? Was it Sirhan Sirhan, or is that a patsy? And uh, anyone who's actually looked into the matter know that there is ample evidence that uh, RFK was not assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan, that he was uh, hit by multiple bullets, including some from close range at the back where Sirhan Sirhan was not standing. So there are, I mean, just as there are questions about, well, not just questions, but really impossibilities with regards to the official account of the JFK assassination, it's also there with the RFK assassination. What do you think would happen if the truth ever came out? It's a very good question because uh, we are now... We're now over half a century out, and uh, certainly I, I would imagine most of the main players in whatever assassination plots existed are now long gone. And many of the people who were in the thick of it are, at the very least, extremely advancing in age. And uh, so I think there is a point at which 
these types of things could ultimately be come out in one way or another and not completely upend society. And that's that's actually kind of a as kind of a horrible thought because anyone who studies history knows there are always 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 conspiracies and plots and power plays and intrigues and all sorts of things going on and we understand this and we know this from all eras of history going back thousands of years and we know about uh, you know the assassination of caesar and things like this i mean it's happened over and over and over again in history but for some reason, no, that doesn't happen in our era. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Oh, you must be crazy. So there's some line. There's like almost a statute of limitations, but not in a legal sense, in a psychological sense for people to accept, oh, yeah, that happened, but that was in the past and that doesn't affect us now. And uh, I don't know if we're crossing over that line with JFK, but we must be getting close to it. Well, I hope they do it soon <laughs> before it well, as. I'm still here. I you know, would like to see what happens. But anyway, something interesting. I saw the report tonight that your prime minister is scheduled to meet with President Trump tomorrow. Uh, this trip was uh, hastily arranged. And so the, the trip sort of suggests that the, the Japanese leaders might have some concerns about the this administration, the United States administration, Trump's administration, to, to the approach to North Korea, as well as trade and, of course, the U.S. and China relations. Um, there's concerns that, uh, you know, um, that Japan might be um, just – totally eliminated with these agreements. So they're concerned about the, the nuclear part of it. Um, and uh, there's a growing fear of, of decoupling, concerns that the United States might not uphold its extended uh, uh, commitments to Japan and South Korea. Are these true concerns for Japan? There are, I think, a couple of main issues on the table here. And as you say, I think the, uh, the, the steel tariffs and uh, the other things that are starting the protectionist trade wars are very much uh, front and center in terms of Abe's uh, maybe interest in, in getting Trump's ear into finding out you know, in deeper detail where this is going. But uh, I think, as you say, obviously, the, the North Korean summit is going to be an incredibly important part of any conversation that takes place. And one of the issues that I find interesting is that, uh, in fact, it's not actually clear how much access Japan is going to have to the real inside information about what the, what is being uh, what is actually happening at the summit. <laughs> to the point where it is now being reported that uh, Japan is sending representatives to Singapore to hopefully get some updates while they're there about what is happening. It may be the case where the Japanese government is actually getting updates about the uh, conference the same way we all are from the news. Well, let's hold those thoughts. We're heading into a break, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and I'm here with James Corbett. We'll be right back right after these few short messages. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Again, you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and I'm here with my co-host, or my guest, I should say, my guest, James Corbett. Of the uh, an editorial writer of the International Forecaster and the Corbett Report. Dot, no, it's the. Oh, I'm so sorry, James. <laughs> CorbettReport.com so or thecorbettreport.com. <laughs> Thank you very much. And again, my apologies. But uh, so, folks, make sure you get there. I love visiting your website. There's so much great information, and it, it's a very it's a website that makes you think. And I I prefer reading over videos and you have a lot to read there so that's why I'm fond of your website 
So yes, we were talking about the North Korea summit and uh, uh, how ja- uh, Japan might feel a little abandoned uh, because uh, them not being welcomed, perhaps. To- well, the entire summit is just so uh, seems cobbled together in so many ways that uh, I don't think many people, maybe not even the U.S. and North Korea, have any real clear understanding of how this is going to take place and what's going to happen and how people are going to find out about what's happening. So, as I said before the break, um, Abe uh, or, or the uh, uh, I can't remember which minister, uh, the, the the chief cabinet secretary of uh, Japan, Yoshihide Suga. Um, is going to dispatch diplomats to Singapore to try to get the latest updates. So, so it's a pretty, pretty uh, interesting development, uh, the way this is all going together, and who knows what information is going to come out when. But I think Japan primarily has two points that are going to be extremely important. One is that uh, uh, in an earlier summit uh, between uh, Trump and Abe uh, a couple of months ago, they had some sort of commitment or expressed some sort of commitment to the idea that uh, sanctions against North Korea will not be lifted unless and until there is clear steps towards de- denuclearization. And that has to be, you know, the first the first part of this. Uh, Korea, North Korea has to really take some significant steps towards that before the tensions are let up or whatever. So that was that was Japan's position. It's not so clear that is the U.S. position anymore. Um, perhaps the summit is more about the summit than it is about denuclearization at this point. Um, but uh, the other issue, which is one that I'm imagining is not even on the radar for most Americans, is the abductee issue, which is uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, there were 17 Japanese citizens that were abducted from Japan, usually from coastal areas, literally jumped, taken, put into a boat and taken over to North Korea, where some of them were apparently used to, as Japanese teachers to teach uh, Korean spies how to speak uh, Japanese, and others were just uh, abducted for their identity, so were presumed killed right away. At any rate, those 17 citizens, that's been a big sticking point in any sort of possibility of uh, relations between Japan and North Korea for many, many uh, decades now, and uh, it's still a, an issue that's raised here quite regularly in the press and in, amongst the public. So Abe has asked Trump to address this uh, issue at the summit. There's also South Korean citizens that have been abducted. So this is kind of a a multilateral concern, but uh, it's not at all clear that uh, I think this is a a pressing concern for on the Trump side. So I'm not sure that will be addressed. Do you think Dennis Rodman is going to be a factor? (laughs) I suppose he could be. I mean, (laughs) this is not something I ever expected uh, to discuss getting into (laughs) geopolitics and things. But yeah, it may be that Dennis Rodman might actually be a factor in this. I mean, I I don't know. I think I'm just going to break out the popcorn, essentially, for this summit, because who knows uh, if it's going to happen, what's going to happen, how we're going to find out about what happened. Uh, I, I think it's just a show at this point. Yes. Who knows? Dennis Rodman might win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Well, you know, this weekend we had the G7 meeting going on in Canada. And um, there's also an anti-G7 getting underway in China. And that is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, no Westerners are allowed in this club. And uh, the dominant members are, of course, Russia and China. There's, uh, uh, I believe you mentioned there was up to eight members uh, currently uh, in this anti-G7 group. But uh, would you like to comment on both the G7 meeting in Canada and 
of this uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization? Yes. Well, uh, the latter one first, for people who have never heard of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, it officially formed in 2001 um, out of the Shanghai Five that was meeting um, from 1996. And as you say, China and Russia are the <clears throat> kind of the nucleus of that. Um, but it now includes uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and just last year, um, India and Pakistan. India yes. and Pakistan were added as members together, which is interesting because obviously India and Pakistan have their issues. But here they are together in this Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which I've always heard framed as maybe like a counter-NATO type of organization. It's not explicitly a military compact like NATO, but it involves military cooperation exercises and things along those lines. So it is, again, interesting that India and Pakistan are together as full-fledged members in this uh, in this group right now. Um, but it also, of course, covers um, not just geopolitical, but economic um, concerns and economic ties. So it's often been compared kind of loosely to some sort of counter-NATO, maybe as a counter-G7, maybe that's an even better... Um, way of framing it because it is more about, I think, about economic uh, ties and things like that. But uh, always some interesting things that come out of those uh, BRICS, uh, uh, sorry, not the BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meetings. And I did write about last year's summit in the forecaster last year. So I will be writing about this and the G7 and Bilderberg and the North Korean summit in the forecaster this weekend. So I hope people will stay tuned for that. Oh, and as well, to, you- to address the G7, uh, I, it's, it's interesting. Um, that uh, was it a year ago, a couple of years ago, when uh, Russia was still in the G8 at that time, uh, uh, Putin was very much sidelined, uh, you know, eating by himself and things like this, uh, very much castigated and thrown out from the group before he was officially thrown out from the group. Uh, now there are people speculating, well, could it be a G6 plus one, as in Trump being castigated because of the uh, the recent brouhaha around trade and uh, the, the tariffs and all of this, which is causing real problems, I think, with some of these relationships. I mean, obviously, we've seen uh, Trudeau fire back and say that Canada is going to uh, slap on dollar-for-dollar sanctions against uh, U.S. goods in, in res- response for the uh, the sanctioning of aluminum and other products from Canada. And, and Europe is uh, getting quite angry about some of these, uh, these things and taking the U.S. to the World Trade Organization to sue them. Um, and obviously Japan has its issues with some of these protectionist policies. So there's, there's a lot of friction. It's going to be, I think, a Maybe a bit more uh, sparky kind of G7 than we're used to when usually they're about putting on a, you know, a, at least a cooperative front for the, uh, the the cameras. It may not be that way this year. Well, you know, isn't the WTO basically worthless? I mean, I've seen lawsuits go through before. Nothing really happens. And, you know, this and that happens. But well, it's really the worst no, thing, I mean, they have allowed China, I mean, to, to abuse. It's very true. Know, I mean, the worst thing that could possibly happen is if the World Trade Organization actually grew real teeth and really did become a major player. Because I think that would be, you know, globalization arriving in the worst possible form. And we've... Uh, I've I've talked about I've written in the forecaster uh, before about some of the ways that uh, there are some some pretty uh, uh, disturbing uh, trends towards um, companies, for example, being able to sue governments if they are seen to be mm-hmm. harming their profit or profitability and things like this that can really open up some horrible loopholes that most people wouldn't want, but obviously the corporations do want. So uh, obviously, if there is a corporatocracy, they very much want the WTO to have more teeth and to be more uh, able to step in and and dictate to countries what they can and cannot do. And so obviously, I think from that perspective, we do not want the World Trade Organization to become 
effective. It would be like the UN becoming effective. That would actually be scary, more scary than the fact that it is a toothless monster. So at any rate, I think that's the, the, the way that it's treated. But it does, I mean, there are decisions that come down. There are punitive measures that happen. And uh, at any rate, at the very last resort, it could kick off a trade war. And uh, that's what the WTO is theoretically supposed to design to to prevent in the same way i guess the league of nations was designed to present world war oops you know i mean it really could eventuate from this this type of move but wasn't that what the trans-pacific partnership was i mean one of the dangerous parts of that was the the the, the legalities the the, the 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 having being able to do the sue one another in a, a global court and so forth i mean yeah, I, yes. that's probably not as you know i'm not saying it as deep as well, it should no, be but, but that are, was, to was... me that was the biggest problem with that Uh, there were very scary clauses in that tpp when it eventually eventually got leaked out to the public um and uh and i did write about that in the forecaster at the time talking about some of those clauses and what they really mean in real real speak not the legalese gobbledygook that they try to hide everything in and there were some very scary ones including some uh, as you say some some of those things about uh, corporations being able to sue government so it's a good thing that the tpp was scrapped at least in the form that it was being planned. However, it might go forward in the future without the U.S. And similarly, yeah, I think the World Trade Organization raises a lot of the same uh, sort of issues. Uh, I just want to go back briefly to the uh, G7 and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, with us, if there's issues with trade with the G7, and you're seeing this, uh, uh, the CSO. And these countries, um, do you think they, are they going to, is this a way for them to accelerate their plans to settle trade with each other in other currencies, bypassing the dollar? And what type of impact is that going to have? The more these uh, other groups become bigger and stronger. Absolutely, yes. I've I've been writing about this for years now, and I've really, I've been ha- trying to hammer it home recently because it's accelerating now that it seems every action that's being taken on the international stage right now um, by the U.S. and its Pax Americana allies is, it, it, it almost seems like it is designed to create, if not uh, to incentivize, the creation of these counter institutions uh, and and counter frameworks and and regional agreements and and trading relationships and to foster those types of counter organizations like the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization and others. Um, obviously, the more that uh, the U.S. pushes away its allies, the more they're going to turn to each other, and the more, for example, Iran sanctions or uh, the sanctions against Russia or trade wars against China. Of course, I mean the absolutely. predictable outcome of those types of actions is these countries are going to start banding together more. And that's exactly the point of the new Silk Road and the One Belt, One Road initiative coming out of China is to try to bring together a lot of these nations together in more tightly consolidated and with laid down actual physical infrastructure, joining them up, putting them together in in regional frameworks and groupings and, uh, and, and strengthening economic ties so that they can trade more amongst each other. And of course, we've seen all the it's the the thousand different paper cuts, if you will, that's cutting into the U.S. dollar hegemony. Of course, none of those paper cuts is even significant on the bigger scheme of things by itself, but they start to add up. And we can imagine the the balance of uh, trade settlement starting to change and the U.S. dollar, which is almost 
you know, almost uh, universally used in international trade, is starting to get chipped away at. And uh, China specifically is making sure that uh, there's a lot of different ways that people can now start to use the yuan. It still is not really a currency that's that's very usable. There are there are two currencies. There's the international one and the, the kind of domestic one. And the domestic one is pegged in a floating peg with the U.S. dollar. So there's a lot of things that, that uh, disincentivize international trade being settled in the yuan. But they're starting to open that up. And things like the, uh, as we talked about before, the oil futures contracts denominated in yuan, yeah. things like that are really starting to, to change the calculus for some of these nations. And now that Iran is being sanctioned again, what are they going to do? Well, hey, maybe they can trade with China directly in yuan for, for oil. And uh, there, there are some significant changes that are happening. And as as I say, I think this is being actively incentivized and fostered by the the moves that are being made on the other side of the chessboard right now. And, you know, with Iran and the sanctions, isn't there discussions that um, uh, some of these trades would be done with gold? Uh, yes, although, as uh, you pointed out, the, some of the sanctions themselves are against uh, gold against. Um, uh, gold settlement and gold trade uh, with Iran. So so I, I think that maybe they, they've already foreseen that. In fact, uh, one of the largest and most elaborate uh, sanctions evasion uh, uh, schemes in the history of the world uh, took place during the last round of Iranian sanctions where Turkey was uh, doing the gold for a gas deal with Iran. And that is still being unraveled. I think just uh, just earlier this year, it was uh, some people were were just convicted of, of, of in their part in that sanctions evasion scheme uh, in court. So it's still being unraveled, and and things are still going on about that. But yes, I clearly one way or another, uh, the that, certainly that oil and gas is going to find some way out towards some very hungry markets, including of course China, the largest uh, oil importer in the world at this point. Um, so I, it's going to happen. It's just a question of which way they facilitate that trade. Well, what if the U, what if the European, what if the what if the the EU doesn't go along and bypasses the sanctions that the the US puts on Iran? What if they don't pull yes. out of the agreement? Uh, what if they, a, what if they continue? I've, yes, that's something I've been writing about recently, too. It's not at all clear that uh, they're going to just blanket go along with this. Um, but, of course, the U.S. is also thinking about that. So they're threatening to sanction companies that do go around the sanctions directly. No, so it's it's becoming quite a mess. And uh, I, I, I think the G7 and others will be interesting to, just to see how these relations start to pan out. Because, obviously, there are some big changes coming on the geopolitical table. Well, we're out of time, James. We could go on for another hour. I, I do enjoy spending these two segments with you, and I look forward to uh, doing it again in, in two weeks. So uh, thank you once again, ladies and gentlemen, 1-800-375-4188. We'll be back tomorrow. I'll be back with you all. Until then, be safe. Good night, and God bless.